You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. The Biden administration is a year old, and to celebrate, President Biden held a marathon, nearly two-hour press conference where he championed his accomplishments and pushed back on his critics and stepped in it in a couple of places. Joining me now to talk about it all, Washington Post White House reporter Annie Linsky. Annie, welcome back to watch uh, to to first look. Hi, hi, good to be here. Okay, so one of the places where the president stepped in it um, was in his suggestion that the United States might accept a quote minor incursion by Russia into Ukraine. Yesterday, the White House insisted that the United States would not accept a minor incursion. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Russian Foreign, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov in Geneva to hammer that point home. The, a press conference was held afterwards where the Secretary of State reiterated um, those points. Did, however, the GAF raise questions about the president's resolve among the, the European allies in particular? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, in this sort of marathon press conference, as you you know uh, correctly described it, um, this was certainly the biggest flub that Biden made. And um, you know, it was really striking because he was given multiple chances throughout this press conference to clean it up. I mean, uh, reporters. Um, came back to it. Uh, one reporter even read back his, what he had said and asked if he really meant it. And he was sort of like, yeah, it sort of does sound bad, doesn't it? I, I mean, like, he really, <laughs> you know, it, it was really um, a, a, a very, very difficult moment for the president. And um, the White House immediately started reaching out to European allies um, to make sure that uh, they understood that he wasn't trying to signal any kind of policy change, but it was a bit of a just sort of sloppy way of talking about um, mm-hmm. the, the United States. Right. And, and yes, as you said, the administration was out there immediately um, cleaning it up. But then we also saw yesterday the vice president of the United States uh, on all the morning shows hammering away at it. Uh, on Washington Post Live yesterday, I had an interview with White House Senior Advisor Cedric Richmond, who doesn't even have foreign policy in his portfolio. But I asked him, and he was he was clear: No, there is no change. So even though the president made this flub in terms of uh, policy, in terms of the policy of the United States, there's no change. Right. I mean, the administration was quite clear that they they were not making, you know, announcing or, or opening the door for, for Russia to make a minor incursion. It's hard to imagine that Moscow isn't going to interpret it that way. I mean, and the other piece of this sort of gaffe, it was in many ways, it was sort of a two-part gaffe, because um, Biden also exposed and talked about the sort of fissures um, between NATO allies and, you know, made it clear that the West is not of one mind about how to handle um, something that is short of a full-scale invasion. I mean, there is Mm -hmm. a reality to that. When you look at what um, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French uh, uh, president, said um, in recent days about wanting to have a sort of a European conversation with Russia. And, uh, you know, his, you know, he, he, 
his comments made it quite clear that there's not, you know, that, that, that there are there is not a 100% agreement. And I think the White House had to yesterday um, acknowledge that, that the West is not of one mind. And so, you know, while the White House tried very hard to say, look, there's not a change in policy here, Biden was also describing events as they are, which is it's not a 100% united front looking at what the consequences will be. Right, right. It's sort of like we have a president of the United States who is uh, willing to take all of us inside the tent in a way um, that, you know, sometimes might not serve his purposes uh, on the larger scale. Um, clear up some confusion for me on the domestic policy front, and that's on Build Back Better. I could have sworn I heard the president confirm rumors that he plans to break up Build Back Better into smaller pieces. But yesterday, Cedric Richmond, White House senior advisor, and he said to me yesterday, quote, we're not conceding that we're going to leave pieces behind. So which, <laughs> which is it? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it certainly sounded to me like the president quite clearly said pieces will be left behind. And there has been, it was an enormous scramble yesterday on the Hill to figure out which pieces the president is willing to leave behind. And that has been a question that has underscored this um, legislative effort, as you know, you know, for the, you know, for the last six months. And it, it has been like, what are the president's priorities? Like, what does he actually in this massive piece of legislation, you know, what are his must-haves? What are his red lines? Um, and the president went much further in, in laying that out um, yesterday or, on, you know, during his press conference on Wednesday when he said, look, uh, you know, um, the child tax credit might not make it. Um, you know, I think that, and that was, that came as a shock, I think, to members of Congress to hear it so, so clearly articulated. And uh, to your point, Cedric Richmond made efforts to clean that up. Um, uh, Jen Psaki also during the press briefing tried to say, look, of course the president supports all of these, all of these priorities. But again, I think Biden was, you know, uh, acknowledging a reality, which is there isn't support for the child mm -hmm. tax credit as it's currently written. And, you know, we've known that for a while, but it, it is right. still meaningful when you hear the president acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. uh, Annie, I can't, every time we get together, we're running out of time, but I can't let you go before um, talking about um, a, a, a big story in, in the paper today um, um, a, about President Biden's first year in office. And you write that candidate Biden sold himself as best prepared to fight four major crises impacting the nation. They are COVID, race, economy, climate, a reporter on each one. You were on, on climate. How has the president, um, briefly, because we've got about 90 seconds left, how has the president done in each of those areas? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually, I did the COVID piece. Um, mm -hmm. And I, but I think that the review, you know, is mixed on all of these fronts. I mean, these are areas that Biden asked to be judged on. He said, these are the crises that, you know, you pick a leader based on who you think can best address these four crises. When it comes to COVID, we are in the middle of a fifth wave of infections. Um, and there are many indications that the, the administration has not learned from the first four waves, you know, testing shortages, hospitals overrun. These are um, problems that we remember from, you know, fearing two years ago. Um, so that, you know, his, there's certainly the, a mixed record there. 
um, quickly, when you look at the economy, I mean, all of the numbers are good on the economy, aside from one really important one, which is inflation. You know, a 40-year high of inflation. You know, Americans are not used to this problem, and it affects absolutely everyone, and it's an, an enormous drag on the president's approval rating. Um, when you look at um, climate, um, the president made a really big promises, and you could say in this one in particular, he really overpromised and has underdelivered for you know climate activists who expected to see a lot more. Um, it, a lot of his, some of his agenda, some of his climate agenda has gotten through in the um, infrastructure bill that passed with bipartisan support. But you know, it's very hard to imagine America meeting its sort of net zero climate pledges that Biden has made without the second piece that is in the Build Back Better agenda, the $500 billion um, for energy incentives to change towards a clean energy um, economy. And then the fat last piece is um, racial equity. And there too, you know, we saw just this week, the failure of Biden's attempt on voting rights. And that was one of the biggest pieces um, of that agenda. Other pieces have already fallen to the wayside, including police reform. At the same time, I mean, the president does have a much more diverse um, cabinet and administration. And, you know, you look at a leader like Kamala Harris. I mean, it is meaningful to have the first black woman serve as vice president. But, um, you know, there's a long way to go on all of these fronts. Um, you know, um when I said we had 90 seconds left, that just goes to show why I'm a writer and not a mathematician, because I don't know how to do the math to see how much time we have left. Real quickly, um, in that press conference, the, we saw a sharper tone from the president uh, uh, against Republicans. Is, is that a momentary thing, or is that going to be a lasting thing in year two of the Biden administration? Real quick. Well, you know, there is that sort of old saw in Washington that the um, odd years are for governor governing and the even years are for campaigning. And if you look, we're in 2022. It's an even year. It's a election year. There's a, there are midterms coming up. And I mean, Biden absolutely has started um, the year with a much more partisan tone, you know, really, you know, saying things that fire up the Democratic base, which he will need to come out in the midterms if he has any you know, if he wants to to sort of keep Democrats happy. So you're just hearing a very different Biden. I mean, it was mm -hmm. sort of the bipartisan president for this first year and the second year, he certainly has come off. This is sort of the third instance um, where he has really right. amped up his partisan rhetoric this year. Right. The Right. The first instance was the January 6th one year commemoration speech. The second instance being his speech in Atlanta pushing voting rights. Annie Linsky, White House reporter for The Washington Post, thank you, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks. Great to be here. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, Washington Post columnists Eugene Robinson and Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back to First Look. Thanks. Good to be back, Jonathan. Thank you. All right, so um, briefly, <laughs> I'm going to start with you. This is for both of you. But briefly, give a grade to year one of the Biden presidency. Hugh, you go first. I did this for the Post this week, D. And uh, I have had students in my office for 25 years in this situation. I've called them in and said, we know you're in a hole. You have to stop digging. <laughs> you have to do things differently. Get that grade up to a gentleman's C, but you're going to have to work pretty hard. 
A D. Okay, Eugene Robinson. I gave uh, President Biden a very different grade, uh, as you might expect. I actually gave him an A minus, and and that was based on the performance on COVID. Um, uh, the Trump administration uh, produced the vaccines against this novel and deadly virus, and uh, we're all grateful for that. The Biden administration produced the vaccinations. They vaccinated more than 200 million Americans, more than 80 million are also boosted. Basically, everybody who's not brainwashed by anti-vaccine conspiracy theories is is vaccinated uh, and protected um, against hospitalization and death from this, again, deadly virus, I see hundreds of thousands of American lives um, with uh, this huge logistical uh, achievement of getting the shots into arms. Uh, I think that's the most important thing uh, that's been done in the first year of the Biden administration. And I think he did as uh, almost as good a job as you could do about it. The messaging on COVID um, has been um, sloppier than it had to be, but it had to be pretty sloppy because the scientific understanding of the virus deepens and changes uh, and the virus itself changes. And uh, so the messaging does have to change, but they could have coordinated that better. Mm -hmm. All right, all right, Hugh. Because Eugene violated the briefly rule in explaining his A minus, <laughs> I'm going to give you an opportunity to explain more fully your D, and then I'll tell uh, then I'll tell you what my grade is. Sure. Forty year high of inflation is number one. Uh, when inflation hits a forty year high and a seven percent annual rate of inflation, that means all the pay raises have been wiped out. Underemployment is uh, endemic. And while, in fact, the president did a fine job early on, they were unprepared for Delta, unprepared for Omicron, the tests are not there, and the therapeutics are undersupplied where they need to be. More importantly, and I've only used this word once on this show, Jonathan, catastrophic. I used it the weekend before Afghanistan fell into chaos and people fell from planes and that catastrophe unfolded. The president's press conference yesterday or Wednesday was catastrophic. I had former Secretary of State Pompeo on my radio show this morning. You cannot undo the damage of a president signaling appeasement to Russia and China and suggesting that minor incursions will not engage the United States. No matter how many cleanups you do on aisle B, no matter how many spokespeople talk to you, me, and, the, and, and Eugene, and everybody else, you cannot undo the air of appeasement the president has created. D. Ah, I mean, okay, a ca catastrophic is a bit much. So my grade is in between you is in between you two. I would give the first year of the Biden presidency a solid B, inching towards a B plus, but a so a solid B. And I say that I agree with Eugene on on coronavirus. I'm hard pressed to argue against you, Hugh, when it comes to uh, Afghanistan and what that did to the president's to the president's standing. But I also think I give him a B because of his inability, not inability, but his, yeah, his inability to read the room when it comes when it comes to partisanship in his old chamber in the Senate and what that would do to his agenda. And also not being able to understand that mansion and cinema just were not going to go his way and in some instances voting rights not being honest brokers 
in, I'm sorry, not voting rights, build, uh, build back better, not being honest brokers there. So I say a B with plenty of room for improvement. But Gene, this idea that the, the president's marathon press conference was, quote, catastrophic, as he says, do you share that, that uh, view? Uh, no, decidedly no. <laughs> Quite the opposite. I thought uh, the press conference um, was a terrific overall, a terrific appearance by the president. He should do more of it. Um, he made the the uh, he made a classic Washington gaffe, which is he told the truth. He what he, what did he say about uh, about Ukraine? He said uh, a minor in, in if there were a minor incursion, we would we would argue about what to do. That just happens to be true. Uh, the, the United States and its <laughs> allies would argue about how to respond to whatever one considered a minor incursion as opposed to a full-fledged invasion. Now, perhaps he shouldn't have said, told the truth, um, but I sincerely doubt that this truth is, is unperceived or was unperceived uh, by um, uh, Vladimir Putin. Putin and uh, the Soviet foreign minister and uh, and the whole world, frankly, um, you hear Macron speaking very differently about uh, about Ukraine. Um, the Europeans do have different ideas. The United States is grand. We keep everybody on side, um, uh, but um, so sometimes you shouldn't tell the truth. But that's what he did. <laughs> yeah, as I said to Annie, um, the president has this ability. Um, for better or for worse for him, of bringing us all into the tent with him um, and letting us know what the conversations are like. Unfortunately, in matters of diplomacy, sometimes those inside the tent conversations really shouldn't be out there for, for public consumption. Um, can, and I'm gonna stick with you here, Eugene, because Republicans, once again, block voting rights legislations and, and legislation and changes to the filibuster rule. And in the aftermath, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said, and I quote, the concern about, about whether uh, African-American voters, his, what his reaction would be to African-American voters who feel that the inability to pass voting rights would prevent them from voting in the midterm elections. And he, the minority leader said, quote, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high, per, high a percentage as Americans. What does it say, yeah. Gene, that in 2022, well, we are still not seen as fully American? Uh, well, I, I think that's another classic Washington gap. I mean, I think that, you know, he left out the white, right? Uh, he, he left, uh, you know, and there's... Um, uh, it, it speaks volumes about why uh, voting rights uh, legislation is desperately needed. Number one, and and um, and number two, it um, uh, uh, you know how does he know that uh, African American voters do not, in fact, want to vote in larger? numbers or larger percentages than white American voters do, or than the American average. Say he was talking about the American average, given the most generous interpretation. Um, in fact, in the 2012 election, African Americans did vote in uh, in greater numbers than the, than the American average. Um, so that sort of aggregate number doesn't say what he says 
it says. It just, mm -hmm. it just, it, it may well say that, um, you know, instead of 61% uh, of eligible African-American voting, um, there could be 70% voting mm -hmm. if um, there weren't active attempts to keep them from voting. Right. Uh, Hugh, I saw your reaction um, as I asked the question. I'll give you an opportunity to respond. Well, I think you and Eugene are two of the smartest people I know inside the Beltway. And I know both of you know that the leader left out the word other Americans. He was not attempting to distinguish African Americans from white Americans. I think you both know that. I think it's also unusual you're trying to read in to an obvious mistake of language, something that is obvious, but read out of an obvious policy statement, the minor incursion, the statement that is there in the room that ranks along with Dean Acheson's 1950 press club speech that is widely regarded as starting the North Korean invasion of South Korea, or April Gillespie's meeting with Saddam Hussein in July of 1990 that is believed to have given a green light wrongly to Saddam Hussein. So what I think is going on in the country, I think one of the reasons the president's numbers are so low is that they turn on the TV news every night, cable or first look, or they read the papers, and they don't see reality from uh, Washington, D.C. legacy media that is attempting to protect the president from his own record and attempting to turn the Republican Party into something that it isn't. And they're trying to create a voting rights crisis when 94 percent of Americans think it's easy to vote. Ninety four percent. We have the highest participation in 120 years uh, in the uh, 2020 election. It's a fake issue. It was done to get the uh, base excited. And the collapse of the Democratic ability to move Senator Sinema and Manchin underscores the weakness and the result of going hard left as Joe Biden has done for the first year. Okay, um, Hugh, you just sprinkled so many rhetorical landmines in that in that uh -oh. answer um, that also, you know, sort of tried to deviate and go beside the point. So kaboom, I'm just going kaboom. to I, I'm just going to move, I'm just going to move on. Um, Bill Beckett. <laughs> <laughs> because well, I mean, Hugh, seriously, you, this is just ridiculous what you just said. But so we're just going to move on to build back better. Um, should the president, should the president just pick rather than try a, a third try or however many tries at getting a, a huge build back better package through, just take two or three uh, hugely popular items call it Build Back Better, get it through the Senate on his desk for passage, and call it a day. I'll start with you, Hugh. Um, okay. Go ahead, Gene. Go ahead, Gene. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, he ought yes. to. <laughs> yes. Also, we're so in we'll, agreement. We'll agree on this. Well, yeah, no, we'll agree on this because, you know, the definition of insanity is, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And there's no reason to expect a different result on the Build Back Better package as is written. So although I support it, I would love to see the whole thing go through. I think it would be great for the country, but that's not going to happen. You know, we, that has been tried and it's not going to happen. So bring up elements of Build Back Better and you can put in big chunks or smaller chunks or whatever. But um, that if you if you seriously want to get um, the, the policies enacted, you're just going to have to do it a different way. I mean, and we have to be reality based. I praise Biden for, you know, for telling the truth, uh, you know, what maybe he shouldn't have. And so 
I'll tell him the truth. This this is what you got to do if you want to get your policies enacted. So you, so you know, um, this is a Friday where I can't I don't I I can't do math and I can't read the clock, and so we have a whole lot less time <laughs> than I thought we did. So I, I need to get a January sixth committee uh, question in. Um, Rudy Giuliani has been subpoenaed. The Supreme Court has al is allowing the, the, the committee to get uh, Trump documents from the National Archive. And the committee has called Ivanka Trump, the president's, former president's daughter, to sit for an interview. Am I wrong, Hugh, to think that the January 6th Select Committee is maybe a few weeks away from inviting Donald Trump to voluntarily cooperate with the committee? I don't think you're wrong. I do think your expectation that this is a story of consequence is wildly off. And indeed, the Democrats' addiction to the rump committee, that is not a select committee, but is in fact a rump committee, the public indifference to whatever they do is enormous and growing as inflation eats away at their weekly budget. And they pay, as I did this week in California, $5.05 a gallon of gas. They can have as many subpoenas and as many shows as they want. They can invite Donald Trump on down. It doesn't matter, Jonathan. It's not going to move the political needle or get the president out of a 14-point negative swing in his first year in Gallup. Okay, uh, Gene, uh, I'm going to give you the last one. Because I'm... Go ahead. No, I was going to quickly um, agree with you on one point, which is that inflation is an urgent and potentially um, uh, grievous uh, issue for the president. And uh, I've written column saying, you better watch this. This is political poison. This can kill an administration. Uh, and, um, and and so, yeah, now to talk to Governor Newsom, Newsom about those gas taxes in California, <laughs> they're making you pay over $5 a gallon. Uh, we don't pay that here in Virginia. But um, but Look, it, inflation is a huge problem, and it, and it needs to be worked on. I disagree with you on the fact on, on, that nobody's paying attention to the committee, but I, I, I don't think that's true. Maybe, you know, partisan Republicans aren't, but that's a minority of the country. Yeah, I was going to say, while, you know, the, the work of the January 6th Select Committee doesn't rank up with up there with fighting inflation and getting a handle on coronavirus and having a unified message on what to do if Russia does anything in Ukraine. But what the committee is investigating is the, one of the more most serious attacks on American democracy in recent memory, if not ever, aside from maybe the Civil War. And so the work that they, the work that they are doing is vitally important. Can you, I mean, real quickly, Hugh, do you not see that? Uh, that's a different question from the January 6th Rump Committee. When, when Speaker Pelosi destroyed the committee's legitimacy, she destroyed its ability to attract the interest of 60 to 70 percent of America. It feeds the red meat that the base wants on the left. It finds villains. It puts out press releases. Okay. But if you put together a Rump yeah. Committee, people don't pay attention. Okay. Yeah, but it was Republicans who it was Republicans who kept. Congress from establishing a proper exactly exactly and now, we, we, no now I know how much time we have left and we've got none Eugene Eugene Robinson <laughs> you gotta go very much for coming back to first look have a good weekend you too Jonathan you too Eugene thanks for listening for more information on our upcoming programs go to WashingtonPostLive.com.